Well, hello, beautiful. Hello there. Hello. My name's Forrest. Forrest Gump. Hello, John. Hello, John. Hello, John. <laughs> hello. Hello, John. Welcome to the party, pal. Hello. My name is Diego Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Oh, hi, Mark. Hello, Neo. Do you know who this is? Hello, Poppy. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Be Kind, Please Rewind, a 90s movie podcast. I'm Kevin. I'm Chris. And I'm finally excited to be doing this. Yeah, we finally got a couple of movies here that are worth watching, and uh, we're really excited to watch these, and it was just a fun month. I had a great time watching these movies. Same here. And, you know, it's it's all three movies I enjoyed watching. So I watched five and a half. I tried to make six. One of them I couldn't really get through because uh you can only get it on youtube and it wasn't that good it was i i remembered it being much better than it was yeah all right so we'll get to that so let's just dive right into it now so we had quite a few movies that came out in uh march of two uh, 1990 right i'm stuck in the present and we're talking about the past um so i'm just gonna dive in here uh first movie coming in 22 body chemistry uh it earned 323 thousand dollars roughly uh it's a movie about a research project on sexual response that leads two doctors into an affair where their deepest passions and darkest fantasies are revealed so this movie has three sequels i have no interest (laughs) it's fair uh coming in at 21 a movie called side out earned four hundred and fifty thousand dollars a law student comes to california for the summer and he ends up playing professional volleyball I guess if you like volleyball, this movie's for you. For all the volleyball aficionados, this is your movie. I'm out. And the one scene from Top Gun. (laughs) Probably a lot of shirtless men in that movie, so if that's your thing. It might be my thing. You never know. Coming in at 20 is Coupe de Ville. So this is about three brothers who don't get along. They reluctantly go on a cross-country trip to deliver a car in time for their mother's birthday. I'm assuming that car is a Coupe de Ville. (laughs) (laughs) It's a safe assumption. Uh, This movie actually stars Patrick Dempsey of Grey's Anatomy fame. Love Dempsey. Can't buy me love. Yeah. Uh, Daniel Stern. Love a Daniel Stern. And Arya Gross. That um, I'm unaware of who that is, but that's who's in this movie. Again, not a movie that's that appealing based on. Oh, and it earned five hundred and ninety-two thousand dollars. Ooh, fancy. Yeah. So we're not we're not that deep into the good movies just yet. Uh, coming in at 18, Love at Large. Um, Tom Berenger plays a PI. The description is confusing. I'm not even going to go through it. If you're interested, go take a look. It earned a mil- it earned just over a million dollars, I'm assuming, just because Tom Berenger was in it. I'm also out because Tom Berenger is in it. Same. Uh, coming in at 17, The Fourth War earned $1.3 million, starring Roy Scheider. Uh, Sick. St- but the plot does not sound so good. Uh, it's a Cold War drama about two gung-ho border commanders who carry out their own private war against each other on the German-Czechoslovakia border. I got to be honest with you. I'm 100% in to watch that. All right. Well, it's Roy Scheider, so I, that's why you're so That and World War II, I'm down. So both of those things, I'm sure I've seen worse. I'd probably watch that. So coming in number 16 is actually a movie that piqued a little interest for me. Uh the Last of the Finest 
Now, it only earned $1.4 million. However, it's a movie about four L.A. cops fighting a war on drugs. Uh, corrupt superiors manage to break up their team when one of them gets killed. So the three remaining officers, they quit the LAPD and they continue investigating. Starring Brian Dennehy. Nice. Joe Pantaleone. 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 Yeah. All right. You got it right the first time. Uh, Jeff Fahey and Bill Paxton. Sick. However, I think Bill Paxton is the one that gets killed. So uh, short-lived uh, role. Yeah. So I got to look a little more into it, but just because it sounds like an interesting plot. Bill Paxton's in it. Brian Dennehy's in it. Yeah, I'm in. Yeah. How I, much I, did I, it make? Only 1.4 million. It's so low. Yeah. I don't know. I'll give it a look, though. It sounds interesting enough. <laughs> the next movie made me laugh at its name. Coming in 14, Blind Fury, earning $2.3 million. A blind Vietnam vet trained as a sword fighter comes to America to help rescue the son of a fellow soldier. Wow. And the title of the movie is Blind Fury. Isn't that uh, Blind Fury the one Christopher Walken movie with ping pong or something? It might be. They did one in like the early 2000s, I'm pretty sure. Isn't that a... Ping pong movie? Yes, I said ping pong <laughs> with Christopher Walken. Oh, God. He's wearing some Chinese garb on the cover of the movie. Yeah, I don't know. But th that movie, I, I just, I'm not interested. No, me neither. Coming at 13, a shock to the system, earning $3.5 million. Uh, basically, it's a Michael Caine movie. So I, I, anything Michael Caine I like, I'd give it a, a look at. He plays a businessman who gets blown over for a promotion and... Basically, his wife like set him up, and he goes out getting his revenge first by killing his wife. So, yeah, I'm, I, I'd give it a look. Coming in at twelve is Lombada. I I thought this was the one where um, until I looked it up with um, Indian guy from I have no idea from Young Guns. Oh. <sighs> Chavez y Chavez. Yeah, He's right. Lou Diamond Phillips. Thank you. Where he played, I thought where he played the singer. What was the name of that one? I don't La know. La Bamba. La Bamba, yes. Right. Yes, yes, I got them No, this is Lombada. This is about uh, two people who decide they're going to enter a Lombada contest. Which is what? It's, it's a dance. Oh, it's not the La Bamba. It's still a dance, <laughs> it's though? It's Lombada. Well, that's awfully confusing. Yeah, I don't know. Using his Lombada dance moves to first earn a kid's respect and acceptance. Right, because that's how I earn people's respect <laughs> and acceptance. Exactly. Coming in at 11, it's actually an interesting movie, The Handmaid's Tale. Obviously very popular right now with the television show on, uh, is that Amazon, right? Was it based on that? The they're, show based on this They're movie both based a on a book. Okay. They're both, um, See, I don't read, so there's a problem. Yeah, so it's a dystopian... Uh, right-wing religious tyranny. Right. A young woman is put into sexual slavery on account of her rare fertility. So uh, it's exactly like the TV show. It's the exact same story. Uh, all the characters are the same, except for the main character. I didn't write her name down, but it doesn't matter. It's not the same. But Natasha Richardson is the handmaid. Also stars Faye Dunaway and Robert Duvall. I Duvall. mean, I... Yeah, Duvall's a class act. So. I'm I'm willing to look at this movie because I'm very interested in the show. I love. I'm the caught show. up in the show, so I, I would watch this movie. Except for the faces that the girl makes, my wife cannot stand. Her. Oh God, she's way too serious. Like she gets way too like trying to be serious and smug. Or yeah. I don't. It's not smug. She's like it's angry. It's like a she smelled something foul and like wrinkles oh. up her face. Bad fart acting. <laughs> it's, it's As like, Joey Tribbiani spoke about in Friends. <laughs> 
<laughs> smell, I smell the fart acting. Uh, that's, that's a great <laughs> reference. Yeah. All right. Coming in at number 10. Oh, by the way, Handmaid's Tale earned 5 million. Okay. Yeah. Uh, coming in at 10, Blue Steel earning $7.7 million. No, this is not a Zoolander prequel. Nice. <laughs> Uh, rookie police force must engage in a cat and mouse game with a pistol wielding psychopath who becomes obsessed with her starring uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. But interesting enough, this movie was directed by Catherine Bigelow. Who's that? Oh, um, she directed zero dark 30. Nice. The hurt locker. Oh, and one of our all time favorites point break. Wow. That's interesting. I remember that Point Break was directed by a woman. I couldn't remember yes, her name. I and, do. We yeah. notice that every time we watch it yeah. and we forget. So, I mean. Also, when was the last time we watched Point Break? The last time we recorded. Right. <laughs> All right. The next movie, number nine, Nuns on the Run. It's a comedy. It's exactly what you expect. And I'm not even going to bother with this. Uh, it earned $11 million, though. This earned $11 million, but a Duvall film didn't. Yeah. Uh, the only interesting thing, so basically it's two con men become, they, they, they're hiding from the police and they join a nunnery, but they're men dressed as nuns. So I guess that's the comedy. Uh, starring Robbie Coltrane. I don't know Robbie Coltrane. Hagrid from Harry oh, Potter movies. Oh, that's why I don't know Robbie Coltrane. Uh, and the director was Jonathan Lynn, directed The Whole Nine Yards, Sergeant Bilko, and My Cousin Vinny. Wow. Yeah. Good for him. Yeah. So, I mean, see, maybe it's but funny. somebody with a resume like that, like he, he might have actually done a decent job with this movie. And it earned $11 million, which isn't the worst thing we've seen in 1990. I would probably watch it now, knowing what it is and what it could be. I mean, yeah. He, he directed My Cousin. That's, that's probably my all time favorite 90s comedy. It's up there for sure. Yeah. Uh, now coming at number eight, Opportunity Knox, earning $11.3 million. Um, basically, two con men hide out in a house while the owner's away. Uh, one of them assumes the identity of the absent house sitter when the owner's relatives come to visit only for further complications to set in. So I find this interesting that the, only because I have a personal experience with someone who did this exact thing, but a little bit differently. So I actually used to wrestle this kid with this kid in high school who went on to murder someone wow. and take over this kid's life while he kept his body in the basement. Really? Yeah. Messed up. In Seaford? No, no. The kid was from Uniondale. Okay. But we used to wrestle together. Like we trained together and stuff. Right. And I'm not going to mention his name. I don't know. I'm not going to go in there. But yeah, the kid wound up getting arrested for murder and basically for a year and a half lived as this person that he murdered. And had the body in his basement the whole time. That's gross. Started dating his girlfriend and everything. Like crazy. That's wild. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the only reason I found this interesting is it kind of like remind me of that. That's too much for me to handle <laughs> right now. Yeah. And the director, Donald Petrie, uh, he directed Welcome to Mooseport, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. That's a great movie. Miss Congeniality, which is my all-time guilty pleasure. So long as you quantify it as your all-time guilty pleasure, then it's acceptable. I cannot turn that movie on if I'm flicking through the channels and Miss Congeniality's on. I got to stop and watch it. Can't Sorry. turn it off. Don't said. care where it is. Oh, yeah. Can't turn it off. Uh, he also directed Richie Rich, Grumpy Old Men, and Turner and Hooch. I haven't seen Turner and Hooch in forever. Well, it's coming up in the podcast in about a month, so two months. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Uh, Dana, starring Dana Carvey. Uh, you know, from Wayne's World. I cannot World. stand Dana Carvey. Yeah, he's 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 okay as a stand-up comic, as an actor. I mean, he was fine in Wayne's World. It's a funny movie. And yeah, but that's he's it. He's playing a joke character. Like, 
besides that, you know, I don't really want to see it. Um, but the director, Robert Lagoya, he not, I'm sorry, not the director. It's also starring Robert Lagoya, who he actually played the general in Independence Day and the coach in Necessary Roughness. Nice. I like him. Yeah. I like his face. Yeah. He's, he's, he's also got, from Big. Yeah. And he's, yes, he is. And he's also got a nice stern voice. So, you know, it's easy yes. to listen to. All right. Coming into the, the heavy hitters now. Number seven, Bad Influence, earning $12.6 million. Um, all I have to say about this movie, there's nothing great about this. I mean, I saw that James Spader was in it and that I, I hate James Spader. Mm. I can't stand his voice. Um, but it's directed by Curtis Hansen, who also directed eight mile. Okay. Uh, Rob Lowe is the star of this movie. Um, I think I'm out for any Rob Lowe movie yeah. where he's playing a serious role. Right. And that's what this is. I believe it's, it's a soft and hesitant young man is in danger when he tries to break a toxic relationship with a mysterious stranger. And, Oddly enough, I mean, Matthew Broderick, Tom Cruise, Robert Downey Jr., they all turned down this role. Okay. Yeah, so that was just an interesting fact. It sucked for a reason, I guess. <laughs> Coming in at number six, the first of the movies we really remember, Lord of the Flies, earning $13.8 million. Nice. So this is the one that I couldn't get through. I put it on. It was terrible quality. It was like the middle of the day on a Saturday. I was half doing other things, and I tried to like force it in because it's only like an hour and a half runtime, I think. Somewhere in that ballpark. And I got halfway through it and I started to remember what happened. I mean, if anybody doesn't know the story uh, of, of Lord of the Flies, the book is, uh, uh, it was written by William Golding. Um, but it's a story really about what happens to humanity if they have no outside influence. So it was a bunch of, I, I don't know what the book says because I never read the book but as far as the movie goes it's a bunch of prep school kids or um cadets like uh, military school kids it's military school they're playing they're on their way home they're playing crashes the the pilot's dying so the only adult that was with them I guess the other ones died and the pilot is the only one that's half alive and he's dying and the kids are left to fend for themselves so then basically after one kid being voted in charge there's some sort of disagreement on how to do things between the children and their children too. They're, I think they're all about 11, 12 years old, somewhere in that ballpark. Um, and then one side wants to break off. They become more violent and one side is more democratic. I don't know what happens at the end. I don't remember, but uh, it's just basically the, the nature of human beings and, and man's inherent violence. That's really what the story's about. What did you read? Um, well, I mean, I read the book in school. I remember watching the movie in school. They rolled, they wheeled in that uh, television. You know how excited you get when you were in school and they wheeled in the television. And, you know, uh, I remember the movie. Not really. I, I didn't rewatch it. Um, but I just found a couple interesting facts about, you know, some of the people in the movie. Mm -hmm. um, James Badge Dale uh, plays Simon in the in the in Lord of the Flies. He's got a bunch of roles as the bad guy, but most notably he was Eric Savin in Iron Man 3. So he's the guy who's assigned to kill Tony Stark and he the hijacks Air Force One using the Iron Patriot suit. So this guy's actually, you know, still working and working hard. Okay. Um, and the tagline for this movie was no parents, no teachers, no rules, no mercy. <laughs> so I found the tagline very interesting. All right. Well, coming in at five was House Party. Nice. I've been waiting for this. Yes. Earning $26 million. Um, so everything that I had thought about this movie, I realized when I started doing my research was that I wasn't thinking of house party. I was thinking of class act. So I don't remember this movie at all. 
All right. So I'm not going to talk much about the movie because the movie itself is um, it, it's pretty self-explanatory. The movie is based on uh, kid and play. Christopher Reed is kid and Christopher Martin is play. If you don't know, Kid and Play was a rap group before they did movies in the late 80s and early 90s. The reason why this movie meant so much to me is not because this 1990, I was 10 years old. So when this movie came out, I was 10 years old. Music still wasn't a big part of my life. But in the coming years, hip hop especially becomes more and more a part of my life. And this movie was just part of the hip hop culture. So I took a couple notes. So what I really wanted to talk about was just the influence of hip hop in New York, especially during the 90s. I was looking up Yo! MTV Raps started in August of 1988, ended right. in August of 95. So, you know, kind of in its heyday. Um, I looked up rap albums that were released in 1990. So some of these are terrible, but some of them are also awesome. So MC Hammer, Salt and Pepper. Digital Underground, Tribe Called Quest, uh, Public Enemy, Ice Cube, Eric B and Rakim, Master Ace, Boogie Down Productions, Cool G Rap, NWA, LL Cool J, Vanilla Ice, unfortunately, Run DMC, Big Daddy Kane, and EPMD. So if you're not an old school hip hop head, which I'm not, you won't know a bunch of these, which I don't, but a bunch of these you do, you've heard of before. Well, MC Hammer, we used to blast MC Hammer in grandma's basement. Right. But I'm sure you know who NWA is, right? I mean, like I know of them. Did you enjoy the movie? Yes. I know I'm talking a lot about hip hop, but right, I mean, I just have nothing to add to the conversation because I've never, I was never, never really been into music, but especially not hip hop. All right, so Martin Lawrence also in it. Tisha Campbell's also in it. John Witherspoon, who just died in October of 2019. Um, he's the dad in, in um, Friday. Right. Okay. The movie's great. It's very well put together. It's basically about plays throwing a house party. Kid got grounded because he got into a fight at school. Tries to sneak out, does sneak out, goes to the house party. They have a great time. They hook up with the girls. They're avoiding these three, the, the three uh, kids that are supposed to be from high school, but they're clearly in their late 20s and well, jacked out of their minds. Right. Stab, Pee Wee, and Zilla are the names of the three guys that they're out running. Um, but that's really it. It was a good movie. I would watch it again. I, I mean, it's not in my top probably even 50, but it's definitely a great movie and something worth watching. Worth a watch. Um, so one interesting fact, uh, I don't know if you know this, but kid christopher reed he actually graduated from the bronx high school of science which is nice. a specialized high school like so very just to smart, get into that right? he is very smart is yeah. basically what that means it's, yeah. a, it's a good school it's hard to get into yeah you have to apply to that school to actually get in so i believe without knowing this as fact they started out as backup dancers before they got their own rap album I don't. I couldn't name a single kitten play song. So they had three albums: Two Hype, released in '88; Funhouse, released in '90; and Face the Nation in '91. And I'm sure they did some songs for uh, the movie itself. So, all right. So uh, moving on from House Party, uh, number four: Joe versus the Volcano, earning thirty-nine million dollars. So that's, that's a, a big jump now. You're also not the biggest fan of this movie. 
I, I mean, I get it. it. It just reminds me of every other Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan film. I mean, really? I, I don't know. I just... It just had that feel, that, that, that somber feeling throughout the whole movie where, like, they would throw in jokes. I laughed a bunch of times. Um, oh, all right. So he, here's... I wasn't enthralled, though. So here's what I want to say. Uh, I want to say a lot of things about Joe versus the Volcano, but I'll try and keep it to a minimum. Joe versus the Volcano is one of the most self-aware comedies I've ever seen. Like, the existential crisis that Tom Hanks is going through throughout the entire movie. So, long story short, right? He's in a job he hates. I get the movie. Okay. But... I, you didn't appreciate the fact that everybody, everyone who was a character in the movie knew who they were as a person, specifically Tom Hanks, who comes to learn who he is throughout the movie and all the Meg Ryan characters. She plays three different characters. Right, she she does the two sisters and then also the, the receptionist. The receptionist yeah. I think she does a great job in the movie. Oh, well, first of all, I was watching with my wife and I had to actually convince her that Meg Ryan was playing all three characters. So she did do a good job. That's um, funny. Yeah, I, I mean, I get the movie. I just, I didn't, I, I don't know. I just, I had an aura around it that I wasn't into. Fine, that's fine. So here's a good story for you. When I was younger, my parents, when we came back from Florida, right? I don't know if you know, my parents tried living, we tried living in Florida for like nine months. They hated it. Did not know that. We moved back. And when we moved back, that's when we moved into grandma and grandpa's in the Hamptons, right? right? So we're living in grandma and grandpa's house in East Hampton, and my father just generally didn't feel good, right? And he was a fit guy during that time. Right. My father's young. Yeah. So nobody, no doctor could figure out why he didn't feel good. So we started telling him that he had a brain cloud. A brain cloud, yeah. That's, that's what's wrong with him. And the only reason that we knew was because we, he forced the testing. Right. <laughs> anyway, love this movie. Love the luggage. I did. All right. I got to say, I enjoyed the whole scene where he's going around with the, with the limo driver. And just spending all sorts of money, just buying anything he wants, buying crazy things. I enjoyed that. I I love that. I love the uh, the the scene in the beginning where he flips out on his boss. Yeah, I, I just I don't know. I didn't feel it. Also, if you noticed, I know you didn't make it all the way through your last viewing, right? So, did you see the crazy walkway pattern when they were going to work in the beginning? It was like up, down, left, up, down, yeah, back, right, back Yeah, it was just right, supposed to up. show like how miserable life was, right? No. At the end of the movie, when he's walking up the volcano, the path up the volcano has the same exact shape of the walkway to work. Gotcha. So basically walking to your death every single day was the point that the director was trying to make. Like I said, I get it. It just wasn't for me. All, All right, right, what's next? Now we're moving on to the, the big three. The Hunt for Red October. Nice. Yes. Uh, this is the best movie of the month, I think, hands down. It's the best movie of the year so far. So far. I mean, we're only in March, so I don't want to say best movie of the year yet. Also, this movie is amazing. It is amazing. Uh, and, you know, the money speaks for itself. It earned $200 million. Wow. Yeah. Did really well in the box office. That's a ton for 1990, right? Um, up to this point, yes. But I also remember, we're coming... We're coming out of like the, the early months. I mean, last month, the highest grossing movie was like $20 million. Right. So uh, it, it's hard to really tell at this point. We're not even at the summer blockbusters yet. So the plot is what? Uh, the plot is a uh, Russian sub-captain um, basically steals the sub. Russia and the United States are both aware something fishy is going on. Mm-hmm. And they're both chasing after this sub-captain by uh, Sean Connery. Right, so he plays Captain Ramius. 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 Thank you. Um, I like how you, when we spoke on the phone, 
at, right just after you had watched this movie and you said that Sean Connery's playing chess while everyone else is playing checkers, but you used other words. Yeah, a little bit more foul language was involved because he was just so much better than everyone else in this movie, with the exception of Sam Neill. I thought Sam Neill was phenomenal in this movie. I thought Sam Neill was good. I thought Sean, I thought Connery was head and shoulders above everybody else in this movie. Um, it has great people in it. Ed Rooney. I, I missed that. Jeff Jeffrey Jones. He's in a, he's the guy that they take that they take um Alec Baldwin takes the photos to. He's the guy building the other sub. Oh, the guy with missing a leg. The guy yes. one leg. Yes, exactly. Okay. Uh Alec Baldwin plays Captain Jack Ryan, which I didn't know that this was part of the Jack Ryan series. Yeah, that actually blew my mind. Once they called him Jack Ryan, I was like, wait, I thought Harrison Ford was Jack Ryan. Yeah, they have a bunch of them. The Jack Ryan series, uh I, I wrote it down. Um, Shadow Recruit is with Chris Pine. That's the newest one. Uh, this was, I believe, the first of Tom Clancy's uh, Jack Ryan series. Then there was Patriot Games, Clear and Present Danger. And you know what else is part of it? Some of All Fears. I did know that. You did? Yeah. I and that's that. uh, Ben Affleck playing right. Jack Ryan, I yeah. would imagine. And then, of course, you have John Krasinski playing the Jack Ryan in the series, the Amazon series. Yeah, I haven't I heard it's really good. I, I haven't seen it yet either. Also, Tim Curry. Tim Curry's in it. Yeah. Love seeing Tim Curry in any movie. And James Earl James Earl Jones. Admiral Greer. Every time I hear his voice, I just I, I don't know. I just I melt. I relax. Right. You have good. You know you're in good hands <laughs> yeah. when you hear James you Earl Jones it's on like, him. It's like your mom talking you in for bed, you know? Exactly. <laughs> um, one of the things that I, I found fascinating that this the the visuals in this movie were fantastic. Oh, you know what I wrote down early too, and then I looked it up. the The background music and the um, the the sounds, like the special effects sounds that you know, like the the pings of the radar and this and that. Mm -hmm. I was like, that sounds like they did a great job putting it together. And this actually won an Emmy for uh, best effects and sound effects editing. Oh, nice. Yeah, I mean, I thought the sub visuals in the beginning were great. The way the whole movie started, you were looking at. Uh, Sean Connery and Sam Neill standing on top of the sub and they zoom out and it's just this massive, massive sub. And obviously to today's standards of visual effects it was awful. But for 1990, this that was it was amazing. I would have to imagine some of that was practical effects, no, being on the sub. Yeah, I, I don't know how they did it. They probably had them in I don't know what that part of the sub is called, but they right. probably had them standing, they probably built that part. Yeah. And then everything else was probably uh Connery looking dapper in the opening scene. Oh yeah. His hair, perfect. He he was someone you you respected just by looking at him. Right. Yeah. Um. So one of the things I thought was really cool in this movie, first of all, Sean Connery trying to speak Russian is amazing. So my note says I can't tell if Sean Connery's accent is good or bad because of his Scottish accent. Right. <laughs> it was impossible. To I couldn't through. tell, so I just I accepted it as good. Yeah, because I I didn't really care about the accent because. Because then they have this awesome effect where they're speaking in Russian and then they zoom in while uh, the one guy's reading the, the letter in Russian. Yeah. And then they zoom out and then he's reading in English. And then at that point, everyone, with the exception of Sam Neill, who did use a Russian accent the whole time, yeah. everyone is just speaking whatever their native accent is. And I actually, I was cool with that because they kind of had, they set that standard in the beginning of the movie that... These aren't Russians, but we're going to... They, they're playing Russians, but they're not going to speak Russian. They don't need to speak Russian. Yeah. Connery stuck with his accent, I think. Did he Did no, he give it, was, it up? It was Scottish the whole way through. He gave it up? Yeah. Uh, I, I told you I couldn't tell the difference. 
Um, yeah, so I, I I thought that was just a cool effect that zoom in. They were Russian, they zoomed out, and now we're in English. That was awesome. You took the you took your notes in this a lot more seriously than I did because my next note is a lot of weird cigarette holding. There is a lot of weird cigarette and also a lot of cigarette smoking being on a nuclear submarine, which not necessarily that that's a bad thing that there's a nuke around, but you're on a sub. Like that smoke's not going anywhere. That's gonna be rough to be in there. When Baldwin gets on Sean Connery's ship towards the end, he the first thing that he gets offered is a cup of coffee and a cigarette. <laughs> I think he asked for the cigarette, trying to like show that he was No, uh, he doesn't smoke. Right. That's just why he asked for the no, cigarette. Yeah, uh, okay. Just, he was trying to show that I'm here to help. I'm not I'm No, not, no, I'm wrong. When he was on the American ship, they offer him the cup of coffee cup of coffee and a cigarette. Yes. On the Russian ship, he requests the cigarette. Right. To show like I'm here to help. Right, exactly. Okay. So yeah, so I, I love the visual effects. Alec Baldwin's whispering, his soft, urgent voice. I, I just I wasn't buying it throughout this most of this movie. Uh, every time he was on screen, I just my notes just say every time Alec Baldwin's on screen, it's a dull moment. Uh, I I mean I he definitely wasn't uh, he paled in comparison to Connery, so I could see how you felt that way. But I thought he did fine. I, I mean, I, I don't remember some of all fears. I know that I've seen it, so I can't say that he's the worst Jack Ryan, but Harrison Ford did a much better job, so. Yeah. Um, a couple of things I just wanted to talk about. So, first of all, the American aircraft carrier, I don't know if you've noticed the name of that aircraft no. carrier. No. The USS Enterprise. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> Which, I was like, isn't that Star Trek's ship, <laughs> the USS Enterprise? It is. Interesting choice. So, yeah, so that was something I noticed. Um, I also noticed it seems like a plot hole to me in the whole figuring out of what this Russian sub is, what's going on with the sub. Uh, Jack Ryan has to go and give a briefing to a bunch of, I guess, high ups in the U.S. government. And one of the politicians, you know, he's listening to what Ryan's saying. and He says, you have three days to prove your theory of uh, Ramius defecting. Right. But they only have four days to stop the ship from getting within striking distance of the United States. I feel like that's a pretty wide window to be given someone to prove a wild theory that everyone else thinks is crazy. You could have three of our four days to figure this out. That's a lot. Yeah. Well, I guess ticking clock, you know, it's an easy way to add some sort of intensity to the, to the movie. And then then also what, what if he made it three and a half days and you still had 12 hours left? Like you're not going to listen to Jack Ryan. Like, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I liked it. I thought that when Connery had sent the, uh, they show the scene where Connery had sends the letter off to Admiral Padora, um, letting him know that they're defecting. So Soviet Union's chasing him down, right? While America is contemplating whether or not they're going to blow up the ship when they find it, when and if they find it. Right. So I just thought that there was a, the way that, it was written and the way Connery had played it, you know, Connery's role had played it. I just thought was it had to go flawlessly and it did. And it, I was, I was on the edge of my seat the yeah. whole time. I, and, and this movie had me fooled up until the, the, the dinner, the scene at the, at the uh, captain's table, the right. dinner scene at the captain's table. I, I, I'm like, what is going on? What, what are they really trying to do? What is Connery really up to? Cause they make it look like he's going rogue and going to start world war Three or whatever. Yeah. I almost said four, but there would never <laughs> was a three. Um, and he's rallying up all the crew and right. singing songs. and That, which, fine. If you, I'm going to jump the best scene right now. 
that's my best scene. In the beginning, when they're singing the uh, the Soviet anthem, whatever it's called, and then they engage the new propulsion system and they fall off uh, the Dallas's radar. The sonar. Right, the son- sonar, excuse me. And uh, I, I wrote down, it's a very good vi- audio and visual scene. And then when they're making the turn in the sub and it angles and everyone else is standing at an angle or holding on to something in the sub. And if you notice, every time they did that in the scene, there was always a glass of something. And you always saw the the, the water or the sky Change or whatever angles. was t- start to tilt, which just so- sold the scene. And like, that's going the extra mile. Like, you didn't have to put that glass there. You could have just had changed the camera angle, had everybody lean. But no, you threw in that extra step where you were actually turning these people sideways a little bit. Yeah, that was very good. I liked it. Um, what was your favorite scene? I have a few. Um, what I'm going to say, my best scene... My favorite scene of this whole thing was when they finally... All right, so they're going through what they refer to as Thor's twins. Yeah. Um, and they're evading a torpedo while going through this. And they're, they've they mapped the entire thing out by math. Right. Like, they're just timing everything. They, they start a clock. Everyone's freaking out. And there's Sean Connery just gingerly sipping his tea, telling them not to slow down. He's so confident with his decisions. Um, and you kind of see, like, Sam Neill, like... He, I, I think he sold this scene, like just his facial expressions. You see him start to lose confidence in everything that, you know, uh, Ramius or Sean Connery is saying to him. Um, and it was just a very exciting scene. It was well acted yeah. on both parts and, you know, kept my attention. I, I, lo- I love that scene. Can I take all the wind out of your sails? Oh, are you going <laughs> to? That's my least favorite scene. What? Only because I thought the... The absurdity and the impossibility of the fact that they said, right, you pointed out that it's all done by math. So they have a timer. They know when they have to turn, at what speed, at what angle. And Sean Connery shuts that all down and he's navigating this thing by feel underwater where clearly you can't see anything. I'm assuming he's never been there before, maybe just studied the maps. And I just thought, look, I'll go along with a lot. But you're not going to navigate at speeds unknown, math uncalculated, completely blind in the sub just because you're an awesome sub captain. Uh, you, you make a fair point, and you do did take all of the wind out of my sails. <laughs> Still an amazingly active scene. Though. That, that's fine. What else did you like? Um, I like the scene where, and this is going back a little bit, but the scene where the sonar operator, that guy Jones, yeah, when he presents his info about what uh, about what he's hearing, and he at first thought it was magnet displacement, and he's he's saying, you know what, it's not magnet displacement. I heard something that's different, and um, his nervousness. I thought this, I thought that guy who played Jones really sold how nervous he was. I was hooked into this scene, and you just felt that relief. When he was because so, Jones was so nervous, and then the the captain responds to him, "Relax, Jonesy, you sold me." And you just see him just like melt in his seat. And I just thought it was just another well acted performance by by someone who's not a main character in this movie, and he's not a big time actor. I don't even know who the actor is who plays Jones. Well, I think it was very well written and directed, and I love that guy's character because whenever he said something, I just felt confident that he knew exactly what he was right. talking about. He sold the role, and like I said, he's he's a he's a character actor. He's not even he's in this movie. What I mean, maybe fifteen minutes of the entire movie. I'll give you. I'll I'll change my worst scene so I don't don't take the the wind no, completely right. you out of you. Do. The the worst scene is the last scene 
they're on top of the sub riding through whatever river or or lake that they they're in or whatever they're talking about what they're gonna do in America and the blue screen or green screen whatever behind it is so clearly fake. Yeah, that one that like, was a bad visual. It, it <clears throat> felt like they ran out of money in the budget and just said whatever at in the last scene. For a movie that had such great visuals, like that was really disappointing. Yes. So I'll leave it at that. What um, was your worst scene? When Sam Neill died because I thought he was the best part of this movie next to Connery. Yeah. All right. So best actor? Obviously Sean Connery. Just he ran away with everything. Like you said, he's light years ahead of everyone in this movie. Um, and then to add to the fact that the only person he has to, you know, bounce back and forth with is Sam Neill. Everyone else he talks to, even, you know, he had Tim Curry for a second. But yeah. he's talking to these low grade actors that are playing like henchmen. Right. Like he has no one to bounce anything off of. I wrote Sam Neill because my, my notes were that he was a bit douchey, but he was also somehow endearing. In the fact that he was like reluctantly and dutifully following his captain's orders without questioning them, knew that he was on board, but still kind of like questioning his motives, but never speaking up about it. I, I, and like I said, I thought Sam Neill was amazing in this movie, but Sean Connery was just, he, he was he was the movie. Look, there's no doubt that Sean Connery's role was better, but if I'm going to choose something, I'll try and choose something a little bit, you know, off the exact mark. So Fair enough, fair enough. Whatever. Who was your worst? Alec Baldwin. I thought he was terrible. Yeah, he I was, didn't really think anybody did a bad job, but I'll go with Baldwin because he, I've seen him do better. So it was just the the choice of everything was right. like this so intense, and uh, this is happening, and now I need to be over here. And yeah, it was just like just, just be there to just talk. You don't have the to way he chose anything. to play it. You didn't like it. Yeah. All right. Uh, Most quotable lines it was actually in the beginning. A very precocious five. That was not it, but like I'm assuming that's yours. No, you say in the beginning. So when uh, James Earl Jones is asking how old uh, Alec Baldwin's daughter is, I think he says like seven. He's like, um, no, she's a very precocious five. Right. I thought that was funny. Like two years, bro. Chill out. <laughs> See again, Alec Baldwin pissing me off. So my best quote was in the beginning when he's riling up all the crew and he's just like, and when we are finished, the only sound they will hear is our laughter while we sail to Havana where the sun will, where the sun is warm. And I just like that because, you know, not that they heard laughter, but they heard the singing. So like yeah. the sonar guy might've heard them laughing if they were driving away laughing. Yeah, I liked it. My favorite quote is when he's in the, when he's in the war room and whoever the chief of, you know, the head of the war room, whoever was in there at the time, was he sits down on the desk next to Baldwin. He goes, I'm a politician, which means I'm a cheat and a liar. And when I'm not kissing babies, I'm stealing their lollipops. Yeah, I remember that. That made me chuckle. It was a good line. Uh, another good line that I had was just at the end. The hard part about playing chicken is knowing when to flinch. That like was that. good. What about the the captain of the Dallas when he's whatever happened the scene before? I don't remember exactly, but he, his response to Baldwin's character to Jack Ryan was, "All right, Ryan, we just unzipped our fly." <laughs> or what about two two hours in? Very Scotty moment when they're pushing the sub as hard as they can, and whoever some random henchman goes, "Captain, I cannot go any faster." <laughs> I thought it was like a very Scotty moment, like. Oh, uh, Enterprise Star yes, Trek. Yes, maybe the maybe the director is a fan of uh, Star Trek. I don't know. Speaking of directors, this was directed by John McTiernan. 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 Sorry. Right. Who also directed Die Hard One and Three. Which, yes, and Three. 
Also, Predator. Predator. Dylan. Dylan, you son of a bitch. <laughs> Uh, and he also directed the last action here, so apparently he likes to work with uh, Arnold. <laughs> he likes to work with Arnold and um, Bruce Willis, which I'm on board for. Yeah, absolutely. Born in Albany in 51. He's Love a New York boy. Native New Yorker. All right, very good. Um, what so about, did you notice at the end on the plane, the Die Hard reference? I did not. The, the teddy bear with the red bow around its neck sitting in the seat next to him? Oh, wow. A uh, little Die Hard reference. Fantastic. But I was gonna say the one scene I really like. I really enjoyed them doing the Morse code with the, uh yes, one ping with yeah, the pings and the what what are those things called the, the periscope the periscope, and they were flashing the light. I guess yeah. I thought that was an amazing scene. I liked I really it. Enjoyed that. Um, I don't think I got much else to say about this movie. Um, overall, I love this movie. I, was, this movie's. A, I mean, it's hard to say, but I guess I would give it. Eight out of ten. Nothing's wrong with it. I will. I'll watch this movie whenever it's on. Um, I love the fact that they refer to the way Sean Connery drives the submarine. A certain thing he does is a crazy Ivan. <laughs> yes, that's <laughs> I, the maneuver. The maneuver. I hope it's real. Yeah, I didn't look it up. I should have. But um, yeah, but overall, love this movie. Absolutely, hundred percent. If you haven't seen Hunt for Red October, go see this movie. Yes, definitely. All right, what's next on our list? Coming in at number two. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles grossing $202 million. All right. So I was so excited to watch this movie. As was I. My notes say, so excited. <laughs> so I didn't take many notes on the movie itself because I feel like the only thing I want to discuss is the impact on my life as a child that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles had. Well, because I think this whole movie, like the whole storyline is, is, is shaky. What holds this movie together, the way they move through from scene to scene, they, I really don't see what's holding it together except for it's a band of thieves that are after the turtles. And like they just they just move from plot point to plot point with any real driving force. All right. So before we get into the movie, I want to discuss the history of the turtles and how we got to a live action Ninja Turtle movie. Can I do that? Sure. Okay. So the first cartoon airing, because it was the cartoon bef before the movie. Wait, really? Yeah. Wow. I'm going to blow your mind you right just, now. Just did. So the first cartoon airing, it was either December 14th or December 28th, 1987. I saw conflicting information. The last airing was November 2nd, 1996. Two guys, Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird drew a comic. They self-printed the comic because they couldn't sell it. It was a black and white, and it was kind of gritty. Okay. Uh, they self-printed 3,275 copies. It sold out in a few days. Their uh, issue number eight, so from one to eight, their issue number eight sold 135,000 copies. So from 3,000 to eight issues later, 135,000. That's quick catching on. Comic, right? So this guy, Mark Freeman, was a salesman. He encounters them, I believe, in a trade show, right? And uh, he wants to work for them with them as like an agent of sort. Okay. He gets Playmates Toys, which was not a not one of the big players at the time uh, as far as toy manufacturers so go. TMNT put them on the map. Yeah, exactly. So Playmates Toys took on manufacturing of Ninja Turtles. They got their first deal for toys uh this is still pre-cartoon. 
for hundred and fifty thousand dollars. No, pre cartoon. Just the comic. Just the comic. Just the comic book. One hundred fifty thousand in January of nineteen eighty-seven. They started the production of the toys. To move the toys, same thing happened with He-Man. They put together a five-part miniseries that was developed just solely to sell the toys that they had. Right. So Chuck Lore, who developed uh, two Lori, excuse yeah, me, Lore, Lori, two and a half men. Tons of shows. Direct, yeah, developed a lot of shows. Dharma and Greg was right. another one, which that show is trash, but that's Late neither 90s, here nor there. Late 90s, early 2000s. And he was, but didn't he, he was a producer on Friends, too. At a one point a lot, a lot of stuff. He wrote the theme song for the original cartoon. So before he was who he was, he was trying to make it as a musician. This was like one of the things that he just happened to roll across. So the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles theme song that we all know he created. That's and he's, crazy. He's still getting royalties from that. And that was his stepping stone into, into Hollywood. I mean, what it, how big a stepping stone it was, who knows, but that he did that Bro, before he made it. Everybody knew who the Ninja Turtles were by 1990. Yes. That, and so, all right, moving on. Toys R Us bought from um, Playmate Toys. Toys R Us was the only one who would buy the toy. They bought an initial order for 6000 thing that Toys R Us wants to buy your toy though. Yeah, well they said that back then like they were like the supporter of manufacturers for toys. Like they try and they right. did everything they could to help the next uh, guy. Right, because well, that helps them make money, right? Make I'm sure. sure, yeah. So anyway, 6,000 pieces was the first order. They sold out immediately and reordered for 50,000 pieces. It took the world by storm. You were five years younger than me, but you don't understand the, the blister packs. The turtle comes in the with the cardboard back and the plastic front. Opening those things was the only thing I wanted to do. Bro, I had all the toys. I mean, like I said, this yeah, movie is the first. This team, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is my first movie going experience. I was obsessed with the Ninja Turtles. I remember putting on my shell, putting on my mask, and go, hopping in the car at five years old going to see this movie. That's amazing. I, I see. I loved stuff like that. That's the reason why I love doing this. Like I went in full turtle gear. Me, <laughs> my brothers, and my friend Tom. That's amazing. I need a picture of that. Please. If I have it, I'd absolutely show it to you. I, I, Please I call know. your mother and ask her if she has she a picture. She probably does. All right. Let me finish then and we'll get to the plot of the movie. So Golden Harvest Pictures uh, with Jim Henson's um, puppet factory. I forget exactly what they call it. They're the ones who put together the movie. Uh, At the time, the biggest indie film of all time. So as you said before, it grows $135 million. Right. And it was put up by 888 Productions, which who's ever heard of them? So yeah, being an indie film. Um they were really worried because Masters of the Universe had just come out before this and completely bombed. But I think, talking about the movie for just a second, I think that they did a really good job with this movie in the sense that they a, they at least took it serious. And they knew and they knew their, their, who they were aiming this movie at. This movie's made for kids. Fine, but it was... The, so the tone of this movie is infinitely darker than the tone of what the cartoon was. True. So they they at least tried to make a movie. And it wasn't terrible. But at the same rate, you know, they're still shouting. Like, the whole movie... Some cowabungas like, and some... You know, there's all that. Lastly... And I loved it, though. Come on. La- all right, so lastly, there was a live-action TV show made. Did terrible. Like, uh, in the same vein of Power Rangers. Okay. They tried to introduce a female Ninja Turtle, and it bombed. Uh, Eastman and Laird, they were like inseparable best friends. They broke up after 20 years. Laird bought out Eastman. Uh, Laird sold the rights to Viacom for $60 million. Okay. Eastman got nothing. Ooh. 
But Eastman was brought back on in 2012 for the remake as a consultant. Okay, so he made his money there. So most of the information that I got here was from a, the documentary, The Toys That Made Us on Netflix. All right. Um, it's a good show. It's got a really happy ending. Almost brought a tear to my eye because these guys haven't spoke to each other oh, <clears> in again. decades. And at the end, they meet back up together. They hug. They're talking it out. And they draw a couple uh, sketches and they're what they call inking each other's sketches. So they're coloring in each other's sketches. I thought that was really nice. Very nice. Very yeah. nice. They're also, well, I don't know so much about Eastman, but Laird seems to have a ton of money. A oh, ton. Makes sense. He's so well, sold the turtles for sixty. Right, but it seems and probably still has some sort of royalty deal on that contract on that sale. All right, so moving on to the movie, we spent enough on the background. Yeah. Well, first of all, I love the opening of this movie, the way that you're getting all this exposition right away with the b- backdrop of New York City, all the people just running around doing their hustle and bustle in New York City. I thought it was amazing. Yep. Um, then they're showing the the Foot Clan at their first the first introduction of them stealing a wallet, and I just thought. Damn, that's so much effort to steal one wallet. What about the the blatant Burger King product placement oh, in that scene? There was, there was more placement too. I, I didn't write any of it down, but there was product placement all over this movie. But that's what you you're an independent film. You have to you you have to you have to sell your product. Uh, you have to sell the, the placement of products. You have to. Yeah. Um. When they first introduced the uh, turtles, the first glimpse of Raphael poking up from the sewer cap. That's right out of the comics. Mm-hmm. Um. That that's literally. The front cover of the first comic is you see that the turtle's eyes sticking up from the sewer cap. That was great. Yep. They go below ground and then all of a sudden you get awesome, righteous. <laughs> and then Donatello with Bossa Nova. <laughs> and they're like, what? Do you know who voiced Bossa Nova, uh, Donatello? I do. Corey Feldman. He's the him. It's like two or three notable people in this entire movie. Uh, yeah, and one of them wasn't even really in the movie. <laughs> Corey Feldman. Uh, Corey Feldman was great, though. Uh, that was I love that scene, though, just them yelling all that. It also reminded me of being a kid, and, and I don't know, we had these stickers. I am assuming they were from the Ninja Turtles, and we had a shed in our backyard, and I just remember taking all these stickers and smacking them all over the shed, and it was just radical, awesome, cowabunga. I think you might have been there when we put the stickers up. I really believe you were there. Um, yeah, so I, I love the, the the vernacular that's used throughout this movie. Um, the whole fight scene with Casey Jones was so that was bad good. that I loved it. Well, that's every scene in this movie is so bad that you love it. There's yes. nothing like... That's going to blow your mind as far as a performance goes. Nothing. I just, I wanted some better choreographed fights from this movie. They get okay. But they're in the the suits. Uh, Look, uh, contrary to that comment, I thought that whoever was in these suits did an excellent job of being mobile. Yeah, no, I agree with that. But I mean, you had Casey Jones fighting the Foot Clan too. That could have been better choreographed in my opinion. That's, I agree with that. I'm just saying. um, I did have to. I'm going to just give you my favorite quote of the whole movie. Go ahead. It's Raphael, when uh, Casey Jones takes out the cricket bat, he goes, cricket, nobody understands cricket. You got to know what a crumpet is to understand cricket. <laughs> what? <laughs> Why is Raphael's New York accent so thick? So thick. But not only that, he's definitely from Staten Island, number one. <laughs> I mean, they live in Manhattan. I don't think that movie producers in the early 90s understood the difference of the accents of the five boroughs. Yeah. Because they're all Staten Island every time you see a movie in New York. 
Um, but yeah, that whole that whole line of just like you gotta know what a crumpet is to understand cricket. Like I get it. He said you have to be British, but it's just so stupid. I love that line. What was your favorite scene in the whole movie? Uh, my favorite scene is uh, when they're at April's house. Raphael's got to go for a walk to clear his head because they just had a fight with Leonardo. Mm. He's fighting on the roof. Um, that whole fight scene was pretty epic and it ends with the burning down of the antique shop. I just thought it was it was a lot of fun. Uh, it's flashing back and forth to them like being calm and just talking about where's Raph? I don't know where Raph is. You know, he, he'll be fine. Meanwhile, he's getting his butt kicked by a bunch of uh, ninjas. Foot, yeah, foot clan. <laughs> I, I, I did like that. I think my favorite scene was the farmhouse hole, which is a good chunk of the movie, right? Mm -hmm. But I thought that, like, they played it like it was a movie. Like, like it, it wasn't a joke. And they were being serious, yeah. Yeah, they took it seriously. And uh, when April's writing down and she's... Drawing the sketches. Yeah, that drawing the sketches was amazing to bring that part of the comic book into the movie itself. Right. And then I also was reminiscent of Sarah Connor when she's like, um, I know that they didn't pull one from the other, but it just felt like the scene when in T2, when she's reminiscing about uh, the past and the future, Sarah Connor. Right. It just had the same feel it to did, me. It did, it did. But I also like the fact that when she's drawing these pictures, it also like the pictures became yes. the movie. It was awesome. Yes, that was very well done. I thought that was incredible. Um, and I thought too a really interesting way for you know to give you the exposition that you needed. Not not my favorite scene, but I, I enjoyed how to go find Splinter and get Splinter back. Like he was in real peril. What I didn't like is that the turtles suddenly become telepathic or whatever that was. They're doing some sort of magic. Mm, I mean, and fine. I, 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 it's I, a Ninja Turtle movie. I give Ninja it a pass. That's fine, but the, there's no magic. Uh, when else do you see magic? Except for when they go back in time. But all right. That's a later on. Let me talk. Hold on. Are you debating whether or not magic is accessible when the main characters of the movie are Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Yeah, mutant, not magic turtles. Um, okay. I'm sorry. I, I feel like we're not on the same page right now. <laughs> well, you talk about this movie taking itself seriously. This shouldn't be magic. I'll, I'll stop there. I'm over it. <laughs> okay, I don't want to argue this point because I feel like I would win, but also I don't want to argue the point. Um, so then they start bringing in a little bit of uh, homophobia into this movie. When was that? <laughs> I didn't notice any homophobia. Donnie calls Casey a claustrophobic. Oh, yeah. And he says, I never even looked at another guy. And I'm just like, this is so unnecessary. Uh, it's the 90s. It's, it's the 90s. 1990s, so give him a pass. And I then... Go ahead. And then, all of a sudden... I see head thug number one. And who is it? Yes. Sam Rockwell. <laughs> Academy Award winning Sam Rockwell. So then, oh, one of my favorite quotes. Uh, God, I love being a turtle. <laughs> when Michelangelo just gets his head sliced off, he pulls it into the shell. When Raph was beating up the Foot Clan chase, my, my seven-year-old son said, they need to practice more karate instead of playing video games. <laughs> uh, from the mouth of babes. Uh, well, I also wrote my favorite, maybe my favorite singular scene of the whole thing was when they're showing the, the hideout and the teenagers are doing like whatever they want. Mm. They're skateboarding inside. They're playing video games. They're gambling. They're eating and it drinking was a soda. It 90s kid. It starts out, you're looking at a 12 year old smoking a cigar. Yeah, it was, it was, <laughs> yes, it was their dream. 90s kid dream. Dream. Skateboarding everywhere. Loved it. Loved it. Do you it. have a worse scene? 
A worse scene? No, I don't. I, I don't either. But there's just so much I'm, love for this movie. So but nostalgic. you can't take the movie this seriously to have a worse scene. I don't yeah. even have a best actor or a worst actor. Uh, neither do I. I do have a best scene, um, which is the absolute. I might have said I had a best scene before, but this is the, what I think is the absolute best scene in the movie. Is the end of the way they ended the movie. So, of course, you expect the turtles are going to take care of Shredder, mm-hmm. but it's not. It's not the turtles. They get beaten. And then here comes Splinter. And they don't have him overpower Shredder. They know that Splinter right. couldn't overpower Shredder. Right. They have him just dodge him and and that's it. And I, I thought that that was a really nice way of showing composure mm-hmm. and not just making this big, huge, dramatic ending. It was just a simple little dodge to the left or the right and that was it. Yeah. Well, look, it was great to see this movie. It was great to see 90s New York. Um. I had I had a really good time watching this movie and I would watch yeah. it again. If you have any if you grew up in the 90s, you love this movie just because it's the Ninja Turtles. Yes. All right. And what's the number one movie? The number one movie in March of 1990, Pretty Woman earning 432 million 645,872 dollars. Don't forget that $2. That's important. <laughs> well, that's m- well more than double what Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles made. Yeah. All right. So. And let's be honest. This is probably like the number one chick flick of all time. Yes. I haven't seen this movie in a long time. When it is on, it's probably because my wife has it on, which I can't remember her ever specifically putting it on. But this is one of those movies that's always on, but you're hardly paying attention to. Yeah, I've. I've I don't think I've ever watched this movie full through until this time. I've seen parts. I've seen clips. I've seen it on TV. Uh, I've never sat through because let's be honest, this movie's not made for me. No, or me. So I wanted to hate this movie. So did I. And when the second it was over, I remember texting you because I was so hesitant to put the words down in text that this movie is almost a very good movie. Well, and... It's entirely, entirely Julia Roberts that makes this almost a good movie. All right, so here's where I'm going to concede the point from the the other Richard Gere viewing, okay? I'm not going to say that Richard Gere is a good actor. In fact, he's still a terrible actor. I think this movie seals the deal with him being a terrible actor. I'll tell you ha- that in a minute. However, however, whoever cast Richard Gere for this movie did an amazing job because... He's supposed to be cold, unemotional, and an asshole. There you go. You got Richard Gere. I wanted to hate his character, but at least he cracked a smile in this movie. And I actually have that written down when he does at the end of the movie. Like, he finally showed emotion. There was... And, and <laughs> somehow, it was void of emotion. Yes. It was it was weird. I just I, He's just such a flat actor. Let's be honest. It's just because women like to look at him. And also, I asked Elena because I, I, I'm fine... With whoever, whatever the other man my wife might think is attractive. And there's a scene, I'm jumping ahead, with Richard Gere in the bathtub. And he has a singular hairy nipple. Like, it's a ring of hair just around his nipple. Why are they showing his hairy nipples? And I said to Elena, I was like, do you think this man's attractive? And she was like, not at all. But in 1990, he was attractive. Fine. Who is attractive in this movie is Julia Roberts. Do you know how old she is in this movie? When she made this movie? No idea. 22. Wow. 
Yeah. Wow. Early in her career, obviously being 22. So Richard Gere plays Edward Lewis, which is the, I guess, the the uh, supporting actor. Jason Alexander plays Edward Lewis's uh, lawyer. Who I thought was fantastic in this movie. Stucky, Philip Stucky. He played a great douchebag lawyer. He did, actually. He I think he did a very good job. And Julia Roberts plays Vivian Ward. And I thought she was outstanding in the entire movie. The entire movie. I mean, yeah. I was captivated, honestly. She I thought she did a great job. Everything she was supposed to sell. I believed everything she was saying and everything she was doing. All right. So the movie, if you don't know what this movie about, it's very simple. Julia Roberts is a street hooker in LA and Richard Gere is a billionaire. Yeah, is is uh yeah he's a venture capitalist or uh, whatever he does, money manager. He basically what he does is he buys companies and then sells them for parts, almost like a, a like a. Which I'm sure there's a financial term for this that yeah. you and I are unaware of at of this moment. So, uh, he's lost trying to get to Beverly Hills on his way to Beverly Beverly Hills. Rolls through Hollywood, stops and asks Julie Roberts for directions. She gets in the car, and then he she he asks her to stay the night. Then she stays the week. Then she stays two weeks, whatever the case is. And then they fall in love. That's it. So it's a love story. But I have to tell you that I tried as hard as I could to hate this movie. And I, I liked it. Yeah, I couldn't hate the movie, but I still still am. This movie's flawed because the whole idea that this man is going to let this hooker get into his car when he's trying to. It's just not going to happen. It's just the whole idea that this man is going to keep a prostitute in his hotel room for a week and bring her to fancy outings. Yeah. It's just so outlandish that I, and well, it gave me the creeps, the whole idea that this man, the point of that, I guess was, it was a testament to the Julia Roberts charisma that she was just that charismatic of a person that everyone seemed to enjoy being around her, despite her lack of character flaws. My, my problem with this movie, I know you want to say something, but my main problem with this movie is the fact that Julia Roberts has a problem with everybody having a problem with the fact that she's a hooker. <laughs> then maybe just not be the prostitute. But, but, see, but this is my problem, though, too, is that this movie, the same exact movie can be made without a hooker. But the, my this is rags to riches, uh, uh, the prince saving the princess, just extreme like as an extreme idea as you can make it that's what they did here and that's why women like this movie so it's not realistic i'm just saying you could sell it with something other than well so to to your point sort of i wrote that (laughs) they are the most well-adjusted prostitutes i've ever seen julia roberts major flaw was that like she was like a unaware. little bit outspoken. She was unaware of the environment that she was in. Yeah, yeah. A, a bit ditzy and outspoken. Like, that's her major character flaw, but she's, she's somehow a prostitute. Yeah. And, and, we, and, and the other problem I had with this movie that was that as prostitutes, they were never in any real danger on the streets. Like, my point is, is that even when they find the other girl in the dumpster and the police are there and there's a crime scene, it never felt like the, the tone never came through that there was danger in these people's lives. Right. Like, even though they tr- they tried to sell it with the one of their friends being killed, like, it's almost like they were just like, oh, yeah, she's dead. Yeah, yeah. Like, all right. And then maybe we should lay low for a while. They had like the nice, quirky little apartment. It wasn't like a shithole or whatever. So. Anyway, uh, the director, Gary Marshall, Princess Diaries, Runaway Bride, which is another Julia Roberts movie, uh, Frankie and Johnny, Beaches, which 
I, I hope we don't have to do beaches, man. <laughs> Overboard, which is the best movie in my opinion that he's directed. Overboard is a, a very good movie, and nothing in common. Uh, he died in 2016. What I, one of my notes about the director Gary Marshall is Hector Elizondo is in every single one of his movies. Did you IMDb it? I didn't, but Hector, I, I liked Hector Elizondo. No, I loved his. No. He played his role perfectly. Yeah. But I'm just curious to know the relationship that he had that Hector Elizondo was in literally every one of his movies going forward. So I just thought that was curious. That's all. Best scene? Best scene for me was when Julia Roberts gets back from uh, trying to, to go shopping and she couldn't go shopping. And that's when uh, Hector... I can't Elizondo. Remember, Elizondo like takes, takes her in and basically comforts her and... Yes. Talks her back up and like becomes her friend. And yes. Was, I thought it was a great scene. I thought that was a very compassionate role that he played. Like he was supposed to be the dick and he was at he started, the outset. Out. Yeah. And then she came back with the problem and he did the the right thing, the human thing to help her. And, and, so, and then they became friends and she was welcomed. At the outset, when he first met her, said, after this week, we won't ever be seeing you in this establishment right. again. And then at the very end, he was like, you're welcome here anytime. Right. So I thought that was nice. My favorite scene was the um, the restaurant scene with the escargot. <laughs> and Mr. Morris is um, from Trading Places. I don't know if he's Mortimer or the other brother. I don't remember Trading Places that well. Well, it's, the Trading Places holds a special place in my heart. And seeing him on screen... He's one of those guys where you see him too. It warms your heart. I did like the part where the she flings the shell and the waiter catches it. And she's like, don't worry, miss it happens all the time. Yes, that was very good. That's great. Very well done. Worst scene? Worst scene for me is the scene where um, Richard Gere like brings her back to the hotel and he it starts off he doesn't want to he doesn't want to sleep with her. Right. Okay, he's just trying maybe at this point I'm thinking, oh, he's gonna play the guy that just wants to do the right thing and once a friend. This, once a friend, give this woman the night off, like be be whatever. And she's like seriously disappointed that he doesn't want to have sex with her. And I'm like, I don't think I think she would be excited about that, wouldn't she? I, I found it Or odd. at least if not excited, relieved. Right. Like, okay, fine. Or maybe she's thinking, Oh god, this guy's a psychopath, like he brought me here to murder me. That could also be it. It's like I just thought of that now, but I I thought it was odd that she played it as disappointed. Maybe she saw a meal ticket if she's, you know, in that role. That's true too. It's fair enough. I wrote my, as my worst scene every sex scene, every single sex scene. I was uncomfortable. Oh, every time, every single time, especially the piano. The piano was horrific. When 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 they were in the bathtub, I was super uncomfortable because he was paying for the sex. That's what made it uncomfortable. I think that is right. That well, I'm most of the time I'm generally uncomfortable with sex scenes in movies. It, it's usually awkward, and you could sense it. Which this certainly was awkward, but yeah, I think you're right in saying that. That I think the fact the, the fact that he was paying for it made it worse. All right, um, best actor. Well, at first I was gonna say any notable sightings of actors in this movie. Mr. Morris from Trading Places. I'll show you to that. I saw Hank Azaria in the beginning of the movie. I do remember Hank Azaria as what? He was the detective that found the yes that was investigating. That's who he was. He was investigating the the their friend that was killed, the hooker. Very good. Um, best. Actor, it's actress Julie Roberts. I mean, there's no other. Yeah, there's nobody else. To if say. I was gonna say anyone else, just because she's the obvious choice, I would say that Hector. I can't say his last name. Elizondo. Elizondo. I would say he was. He's probably my second. Or Jason Alexander. I thought did a really good job. 
Um, but Julia Roberts is the movie. She plays every scene. With, without stuff. Julia Roberts, this movie is not. Yeah, agreed. Not watchable. And worst actor. I mean, it's obvious. It's Richard Gere. Is he's the worst actor whenever he's in the movie. And there was one line that sold it for me, being from li- living on living on Long Island. There was yeah. one line that killed him for me from the beginning of the movie. He goes, "My ex wife is in Long Island." Yeah, no, don't. And it's you, you're not in Long Island. You're, you're never Island. in Long Island. You're only on Long Island. And that pissed me off. So that right there, I was already done with him. Well, my what I wanted to say was what I said before. I don't think he played the role poorly. I just think that he's the same guy every single time. And either you like him or you don't. There's and no I don't like him. Voice ever. No, there's no movement in his face. I don't know. Was it Botox back then? What did that? I, I can't tell you. I just, and he's really not that good looking. No, I don't find him attractive. <laughs> I can point. I have no problem pointing out when I feel another man's attractive. Like a good looking yeah, guy. No problem with that. He's not a good looking guy. Right. Most quotable lines? Uh, I did like, it was actually one of Richard Gere's quotes. It's, I thought it was a pretty good quote. He goes, You and I are such similar creatures, Vivian. We screw people for money. So, because it was, it was such an asshole thing to say. Right. But also so appropriate and accurate that it was, it was a good line. My, I think my favorite line of the whole movie is when they he when Gear takes her shopping after she tells him that you know she only bought one dress or whatever so he's like I thought you would have bought more she said she had trouble going shopping so he takes her out and takes her to the store and the guy that's helping him and Gear's talking to the guy that's helping him who's he's somebody I can't remember his name or face at the moment but so Gear says we're gonna spend an obscene amount of money here he says sir exactly how much money are we spending here profane or really offensive and Gear goes really offensive and then the guy the guy's response is oh I like him so much <laughs> uh, so in the beginning when um, Richard Gear's lost he pulls up to the homeless guy digging through the trash and he goes hey can you tell me how to get to Beverly Hills and the homeless guy's response is you're here. That's Sylvester Stallone's house right there. <laughs> I think he says Sly Stallone. Oh, maybe. I thought he said Sly. So. Overall, is it worth watching? Yes. Is it for me? No. No. Uh, I, I mean, it's a, it's a look, movie. I told Elena my exact words were, if you ever want to put this on, I won't protest. <laughs> that's how I feel about Fair this enough, movie. Because anytime Julia Roberts, I, I've, said, I've said it like seven times, every time Julia Roberts is on screen, you're getting like, Top-notch, grade-A, fantastic acting. Yep. All right. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed this month. As you could see, we went pretty long. So April 1990 coming next, and I'm saddened to say it is a barren wasteland once again. Going back to February here, aren't we? But after that, it gets significantly better. So we power through April, and then I could tell you, my excitement cannot be contained for some of the movies that are coming up. All right, but just let's give the bad news. What are the top three movies of April 1990? All right, so April 1990, top three. We have uh, The Guard in no order because I'm going to do this off the cuff. The Guardian, which I don't know what that is. Uh, Ernest Goes to Jail. Oof. And that's the number one grossing movie. <laughs> so That's how you know it's a rough month. That's, that's a good gauge. And uh, a movie called The First Power. I've never heard of these movies. Except for Ernest Goes to Jail. You know what I've never seen, though, that's in April of 1990 that I'm going to watch just to give me some sort of relief from the trash that I'll be forced to watch? Uh, is Cry Baby with Johnny Depp. 
Oh. I don't know if it's good or bad. But it's it's one of his first movies, right? That's his first like lead. Um yeah, it's definitely it very early in his career. Um but I'm going to watch it just because it's a Johnny Depp movie that I've never seen before. Speaking of Johnny Depp, did you know that he auditioned for the role of Marty McFly? I didn't know that. Isn't that interesting? That would have been a way different movie, wouldn't it have? <laughs> yeah. Thank you for doing this with me. I had a great time this All month. Right. Yeah, it was a lot of fun watching these movies. See you next week, month, whatever. See you next time.